Look at how wonderful dominion can be when it is done according to the pattern God gave us. Christ-like dominion rules through loving sacrifice, not tyranny. Too many Christians have conflated dominion with oppressive rule. Let's see how much we can exploit those we rule over with brute force. But Christian dominion is servant-like, giving and not exploitive. It cleanses and washes and beautifies. A husband that exercises this kind of headship makes his wife thrive and flourish and become more fruitful. Through his sacrificial love and leadership, she also grows more radiant and beautiful. Our dominion over creation should follow a similar pattern because that is God's character. Biblical dominion over creation should have lovely results if we follow the same pattern. We are to exercise dominion over the living world, whether it's just our pets, our backyard, our garden, our farm and livestock, whether it's our city parks or national parks, so that whatever is entrusted to our care can thrive and never languish or be ruined or squandered. It should be made more beautiful and flourish, just like a cherished wife. I'm not advocating veganism or vegetarianism due to a sentimentalized view of animals where hunting big game or slaughtering livestock is frowned upon. Not at all. It is lawful to eat meat and supply that demand as a rancher or an avid hunter. The point is to exercise dominion in such a way that what belongs to us is cared for. God blesses obedience. Jacob's flocks thrived and increased because of God's blessing. But at the same time, God uses means. Jacob slaughtered and ate from his flocks, but he also knew and cared for their needs. He led them to good pasture and watered them. He bred them to be stronger. He did not drive them too hard. Like Jacob, we should be responsible, diligent husbandmen. This involves being a student of what we own, whether it is a pet snake, dog, cat, thousands of cattle, or huge tracts of wilderness. We have to know our charges well so that we can adequately care for them. The bigger the charge, the more we have to know. The responsibility can be immense. Excerpt from A Different Shade of Green, A Biblical Approach to Environmentalism and the Dominion Mandate by Gordon Wilson. Well, welcome back to another episode of Bright Hearth. My name is Brian Sauvé, joined as always by my lovely wife, Lexi. Say hi Hello. to people. You did a great job reading that Thank the second you. time. The second time. I had to do two <laughs> takes, guys, because I, I said a word wrong in the middle and Lexi noticed and I didn't. So it was like, let's just save future Brian editing time and Ray editing time and cut that out. We're also joined again by the night flying F-35s from Hill Air Force Base, Utah. So say hi to the people, Jets. Actually, you couldn't hear them on the oh, recording. Good. I was surprised. Wow, good. Well, we just spent a few days at East River Church in Batavia, Ohio, for the County Before Country conference that Michael Foster put on, and we did have a great time seeing many of you and meeting lots of listeners of Bright Hearth. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was really fun to a couple of the name, a couple of you guys I knew, some patrons there, but also just listeners, and we got good feedback. And actually, season one got a little bit longer because <laughs> <laughs> I think, in a good way, we've got some good suggestions from a few people on actually a few topics that would be perfect for this season. So we'll still get in a second season very soon, though, I promise. Um, but 2023. 2020 sometime. 2020s. In the 2020s, we'll get there. But yeah, we had a great time seeing many of you. I had a good time leading worship, actually remembering how to lead worship from behind a guitar. So that was kind of fun. Uh, but you guys sang really well, and uh, it, was a, it was a good time. One of the things that really leapt out to me from the conference was actually something that John Moody, one of the speakers, uh, said, 
And, and Michael actually organized it. So Lexi and I and little Winifred, we shared a house with the Moody's when we were there. And they were awesome. Yeah, they were. Super kind. Very hospitable. Uh, very hospitable. I told them, I said, it was like home away from home. <laughs> yeah, they were very, very kind. And it was great getting to put a face with the name with John Moody. I'd never actually met him before. Some people call John the Tom, the Tom Bombadil of our time because he's kind of like this jolly stalwart food reformer who has stood down the U.S. government several times <laughs> in service of local food and doing food Christianly in general. Um, and so he, he said this, I, I, I think I'm getting it close to how he said it. This is just from my memory. But he said something like, you can't beat an enemy on whom you rely for essentials. And I thought that was a very powerful sentence. You can't beat an enemy on whom you rely for essentials. So the reality is that to the degree that we depend on government-subsidized, statist, big agriculture and big food, we are extraordinarily easy to manipulate, to control, to step on in general, to poison, to disease through the food chain. And so one thing we want to see both in our own life, in our own home, but also in our church and in our community and the broader Christian culture in general, is just a recovery of the local food chain, of Christian agriculture, Christian homesteading, and, and just basically like ethical Christian food culture. Christian food maximalism, we might call it. No matter how you you know shake it, food or the pantry, or the larder, how you get your food, and how you are going to feed your people. These are just obvious components of the productive Christian household. And so one of the lost arts of domesticity that we need to recover uh, just is the local food chain, from garden to table and farm to larder and farmer to customer and baker and bartering and all of those different things. And so that's the, that's the subject of our season here, recovering the lost arts of the productive Christian household and Christian domesticity. And so we wanted to talk today about food chain, gardening, um, raising animals, Christian homesteading, all of that sort of growing food chain sort of stuff. Sound good? Sounds great. So we're going to talk about it in a few headings here. And the first one is that we want you to, to understand that in the way we frame the whole episode with that Gordon Wilson quote, um, probably tipped you off to this, but we're talking about productive Christian household is, is a part of Christian dominion. We're going and fulfilling the mandate of God to his people in the world, as well as the Great Commission and how those two relate. The, ho the home sits right at the center of a lot of that. And Christian dominion is just another way of saying Christians going and being Christians about every part of their life, taking the raw materials of the world God made, living at peace with them, cultivating them, bringing glory in gardens out of deserts. So Christian dominion, this is the first thing we'd want you to understand, is that Christian dominion is the antithesis of both, there are going to be two ditches. On one side, Christian dominion is the antithesis of pagan earth worship. And on the other side, Christian dominion is also the antithesis of secularist exploitation. So let's unpack that a little bit um, and uh, talk about those two ditches and what Christian dominion looks like in uh, contrast to them. I think... Pagans were the original exploiters. Like classically speaking, Christians were uncomfortable altering the landscape for any reason. They wanted to work with the nature of the landscape, but it was the pagans who actually went in and started trying to drastically alter things. So 
you can see it way back then. Yeah, and even specifically what I had in mind is like worshiping the, getting the creature-creator distinction wrong. Yeah. If you think that the earth is God or is, you know, mother God, or if you think that the earth is just a part of God or that God is in everything, if you deify nature, then you won't actually know how to prop. It, it seems like you might treat nature better if you do that, but what actually happens is that you com- you get it all wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't, if something is not meant to be worshipped and you insist on making it a god, then you will actually end up destroying that thing, mm-hmm. not properly relating to it. Well, you see like veganism. A lot of veganism comes from somewhat pagan cultures. Well, not somewhat totally pagan cultures, but even a lot of the impulse is because some divine respect for the animal that actually isn't willing to honor its life by completing the life cycle. <laughs> yeah, if you know? God made animals as food, yeah, and you actually take that off the table as a category mm-hmm. for the nature of that animal, you, it sounds weird to our modern minds, but you're actually not treating that animal properly. No, and I remember Justin Rhodes said something once where he had a sheep that died and he didn't know what happened and he was he felt really bummed out because he was like people don't realize that when a, an animal dies naturally and you're not killing it at the height of its lifespan and its health, it's typically died in a diseased and painful state. So he felt bad because he knew whatever had happened to his sheep, it was probably a disease and they were in pain and it was uncomfortable. But it's really interesting to consider if you're, you know, I think about like when we slaughtered the pigs and we fed them their little treat and they had all their happy hormones going and they were healthy pigs and then you shoot them that's the time, like that's the prime of their life where they're not dying in pain. It's a different way of caring for the end of life of the animal. Does that make sense? Yeah, the whole lifestyle, the whole life cycle lifestyle when you're caring for an animal, when you actually take an interest in understanding what the animal is for and and how it was made by God to do what it's for. A pig is a good example where basically a pig's whole body is pointed at its snout. (laughs) It's like the entire makeup of the animal is designed for that animal to root around and dig and find things in the ground to eat. And that, you know, the way that God made that, that pig was intended to work in harmony with the way that he made 10,000 other things, the Mm, trees and the dirt and the plants and the animals and the light and the soil cycle and create, you know, creating fertile soil through the activity of the pig. And all these different things work together. The pagan uh, earth worshiper makes the mistake of basically putting himself on uh, the level of servant or like um, servant-master relationship to the earth, where the earth is his master, it's his God, mm, and he worships yes, it. that's a good point. Instead of properly orienting man as the pinnacle of creation, the king of creation, the, you know, like the, the little L lord of creation, who is supposed to... The vicegerent is a good word. Like God is the king of kings, and man is supposed to, in his image, go out and rule over and take dominion and cultivate creation and make it into what it, it was supposed to be all along. And God intended for that. If, the, if Christianity is true, then that is true. So that's one ditch. And on the other side, we have a kind of materialist exploitation that is very secularist in its um, nature. And this would basically be just to treat the, the earth like, you know, one big machine 
that we just are trying to get things out of in a super efficient way where we're trying to dominate the landscape in a way that is more like Sauron and Saruman than the hobbits in the Shire, if that makes sense. This is, there. you know, pagan environmentalists talk about like the rape of the earth, and often they just mean normal Christians, you know, humans being humans, and but there actually is such thing as the rape of the earth. Yes, that's what I was thinking when, when you were reading that um, section from Gordon's book. If you compare it to marriage, you and, and I'm saying that because a husbandman is also somebody who tends to the earth. A, a bad husband rapes his wife, does not leave her better mm-hmm. for having been with her. Yeah, <laughs> it should not be so with a Christian in his field. Yeah, if a man were to treat his wife the way that big agriculture treats the earth, he would basically think of his wife as a machine that makes offspring and a machine that produces dinner for him and a machine that cleans. She's like a Roomba crossed with, you know, one of those robots in the McDonald's kitchen that cooks stuff now. And like, uh, what's it? The, the womb thing that they're trying to create where they can grow babies in these, you know, fake wombs. Yeah, you're not actually taking interest in your wife in that model. And like, I love this woman. I want to know this woman. I want to cultivate my relationship with her in a way that would actually beautify, enhance, and bring out the best in my wife. And out of interest for the world and genuine love for other people, we actually want a complexity of crops in... Like we, we don't want just 100 seeds to choose from. We want mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of seeds to choose from. So I think that's another thing that big agriculture gets wrong is they kind of de-glorify the world in a way by giving us like two things to eat. Yeah, that's corn a great. And soy. <laughs> it's a great example. They, they basically say, we're going to make one type of soil everywhere. We're going to turn all the soil of all of the farmland, of all of the places into one type of soil by chemically altering it with massive amounts of artificial fertilizers and things like that. So then we can put in one type of seed that we know will grow in this one type of soil. We're going to grow this one type of seed, this huge monoculture. And and basically what that does is it just flat, it steamrolls everything the way that Saruman steamrolled the gardens that surrounded Orthanc in The Lord of the Rings, or Sauron destroyed the, the blasted the lands surrounding Mordor, he just steamrolled everything and for, and made it a slave that served him, his purposes. And I think materialist, secularist, exploitative, fake dominion looks similar. And you're right. It's like how many varieties of apples existed in, the you know, let's say, 1800? Well, I think it was in that Carla Emery book, The Encyclopedia of Country Living. It's in lots of places, but I think that's where I read it, where they talked about within a matter of two years, the seed catalogs literally went from hundreds of thousands of varieties to down to a couple hundred because of Monsanto. Like, Mm -hmm. And the reason I say it has to do with love for people is, say, you know, the two types of corn we grow in the U.S., for whatever reason, they get diseased one year. That means, we, and we're depending on corn, I mean, this is a very yeah. common thing we're actually seeing right now. We're depending on corn for basically every type of filler in all of our shelf food. Yeah. So what happens to our neighbor then when we have no corn this year? 
-hmm. Our neighbor goes hungry. (laughs) And so that's why we actually need to care about preserving and stewarding some of these awesome gifts of even seeds, Mm -hmm. you know? Another great example of why this is a a love of neighbor and therefore an issue of the law. If you think about um, the goals that are driving sort of the 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 selection process, whether it's genetic modification or just selection, you know, like um, you mean like hybrid because there is a difference between hybrid exactly. And, yeah. Whether it's full on GMO genetic modification in a lab or hybridization where you're interbreeding and crossing species and basically optimizing, yes. you have to ask the question: What is the compass bearing in this secularist materialist food world? What are they aiming for? They're aiming for maximal profits, as much money as quickly as possible. They're aiming for as, as, as many calories as cheaply as possible. What are they not aiming for? They're not aiming for careful study of God's world to see the intricacies of what he's made. They're not aiming for diverse uh, and, and therefore anti-fragile crop, uh, diversified crop culture. So they're aiming for something wrong because they have a wrong worldview operating behind everything they're doing. So the problem, a lot of the time I think people will wrongly, Christians even, will wrongly locate the problem in, the, in technology, in Christians cultivating or hybridizing or doing things like that. It's not actually the, the problem. It wouldn't be a problem. It, it wasn't a problem when some of those hundreds of apple varieties came about because a farmer noticed, hey, this apple seems to be really good for storing and making cider, and this apple, though, is really tasty and is just delicious, but it doesn't keep as well. And let's say that he then did the work of grafting and hybrid, you know, making a new variety of apple that kind of met in the middle and was tastier, but had more shelf stability. Well, that's that's actually Christian dominion. Yeah. He's, he's aiming to serve people, but he's not trying to conquer the world with his one apple, <laughs> right? He's not trying to take the whole thing over and just destroy it. And so often the food culture... Uh, is in America this secularist, materialist, um, false dominion food culture. It is in, it's in bed with big government, big pharmaceutical, and big agriculture work together. And essentially, whether it's nefarious and intentional or unintentional, the result is that they've made people extremely sick. They've made people extremely fat. That's what I was going to say. Is Gordon finally convinced me that stewardship... God has deemed his creation good. He said that mm-hmm. in Genesis. Genesis. So true stewardship maintains that goodness or improves it. Mm-hmm. It never takes away from it. In that case, a lot of modern medicine is not considered stewardship. Mm-hmm. In that case, GMOs are not considered stewardship. So and, and you can also read Joel Salatin for the like the idea of stewardship improving or maintaining and not taking away from. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, I just I thought I'd mention that. Yeah. And that's that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about Christian dominion. We're talking about properly locating man as the pinnacle of creation under God, given his marching orders to go out and cultivate, to make deserts into gardens, to go and name and take dominion over the beasts of the field and over the the birds of the air, go and domesticate animals. Go and make herds of animals that can use to serve human needs. Go notice how those animals relate to the landscape and how the prairie grasses relate to the to the ruminant animals. And go figure out how that works. Go figure out how pigs 
relate to the soil. Go figure out how bugs relate to the soil. Yeah. And if you do that, go you know, even go figure out things like disease and blight and crop issues. If you go and do that, uh, then you will not only will you learn 10,000 things about uh, about how to take care of food, you'll actually be learning about God. We, we would say that farming and gardening, planting and harvesting, that these things are actually just as much pedagogical as they are practical. Yeah. Meaning that they actually are meant to teach you things about yeah. God. Like how many yeah. farming metaphors are there in Scripture? Well, every year when I plant my seeds, like I just pray over my oh, garden yeah. because it's like there's no matter... I could have... On my end, all of the perfect, the perfect soil, the right compost, the right layers, the right seeds, the right feed, and yet God has to be the one that gives the growth. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. uh. Yes, exactly. So we're supposed to be learning as we're doing these things about God, about the world he made. So Christian dominion is the goal here. We're trying to take Christian dominion over our local food chain, over the food chain, basically how food gets on our plate, how food ends up in our pantry, how our homes relate to the field and relate to the, the the animal pen and relate to the fruit tree and relate to all these different things. So that said, we do want to make a note here about another... Di- we've talked about dominion versus pagan earth worship, secularist exploitation. We do need to be on the watch when it comes to food culture, especially as you get more and more serious about this, of a kind of fellowship-destroying um, sin that can creep up in this world sometimes, and uh, it's kind of a revolutionary versus reformer spirit, and we'd call it food fussing. I think Joe Rigney's talked about this in his book, The Things of Earth. Um, Pastor Douglas Wilson's talked about this in his Food Catholic book here. But what is food fussing, Lexi? What are we, what are we talking about when we say that? Um, either looking down upon someone else or thinking highly of yourself because of the food you eat or don't eat or um, putting others down or just being completely, I don't know what's the word, uncharitable in emailing, you know, someone invites you over to dinner. Mm-hmm. I heard this was yeah. a real story that happened. A pastor's wife at the conference told me this. And they were emailed a PDF of all the ingredients that person was not willing to eat at their house. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that person. No. The Lord says that all things are sanctified by prayer, including the GMO apple that is served in the pie that your friend made for you. (laughs) So, and and what what actually happens is that actually two things are happening. First, you're treating, you're improperly um, ordering importance. Because let's say that you are faced with the question of your, your donkey falls in a pit on the Sabbath. And according to Jesus, you have this ethical conundrum where you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Getting a donkey out of a pit is a lot of work, from what I understand. Like, I've never done it, but I imagine. The donkey's mad, you're sweaty, it's not not fun. But you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus clears that up in the Gospels. He says, of course, you get the donkey out of the pit on the Sabbath, because those two principles collide, and you have to properly order, which is the, 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 the higher principle, which is the higher principle of the law at work, the love for the beast care for the animal. So you are going to do some work, you're going to get the donkey out, and then you're going to continue your rest. So let's say you go over to someone's house, new couple to the church. Let's say your church has a great food culture. You're going to work on some of the things we're talking about. And so you're, you know, very accustomed to eating ancestrally or <laughs> accustomed to eating, you know, high quality food that is 
grown well, you know, by local Christian farmers, maybe even, and you've got that down and you, you know how to ferment and you know how to, you've got your sourdough starter. It's like 60 years old. Your grandmother started it back in mm-hmm. her one room prairie house. And you go over and this new couple, maybe they're, you know, beginning of the career, pretty broke. And they serve you some craft Mac and cheese complete with uh, whatever yellow 40 food coloring <laughs> made out of, I'm sure the most GMO of GMO. And it says right there on the box made with real cheese. So, you know, that you're safe. And <laughs> the, uh, the guy serves it to you, the husband. And, and what do you do? Well, one thing you could do is fuss, throw a fit, go on a 45 minute lecture about why they're trying to kill you and they're Be a bad guest <laughs> and refuse to eat their food. And I'm not talking if you have like a legitimate, you you eat the food, you're going to get violently ill. I, I, I'm not talking about that. A genuine allergy or medical issue, but like you celiac or whatever. Generally, let's say that you're just a normal human. What should you do? You should pray in thanksgiving over the food, over the Kraft mac and cheese. You should say, thank you, Lord, for the generosity of this person who served me in their home. And uh, say amen. And you should take a big bite. And you should say, this is so wonderful. Thank you for having me over. And for some people, that is like, that will actually lead them to functionally break fellowship. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. That's what we're talking about with food fussing. We're not talking about having standards. We're not talking about, you know, going for those standards. But what happens is you've treated the wrong principle as primal. The person is a much higher principle in front of you than the health of the food in the next 10 minutes. And to be honest, you're just a complete knucklehead. If you can't look at, like, I've been thinking about this a lot today. It literally takes so much time to source these things. It takes money to source it differently. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time to learn and trial and error. If you just go up to a new, you know, even a young Christian or a a new bride and say, hey, how come all of your food's not fermented yet? She's like, well, I don't know. I'm still learning how to find a good recipe. Like Mm -hmm. she would literally be starving Mm -hmm. because, I mean, think about the number of people that have told me how hard it is to get sourdough going. I always encourage them, just keep going. It can be finicky. Just keep going. Just keep trying. If they were literally dependent upon your ideal diet that you have in your head in order to get food in their bellies, they would starve. Like it's just stupid <laughs> and not very pastoral and not very kind. Yeah. You don't have a good view of the learning process if that's Yeah, it's a revolutionary spirit. It's an everything yeah. right now spirit. Instead of recognizing that you are probably also learned these things. I bet you grew up yeah. eating craft mac and cheese, most of us. And we learned about these things. Yeah because of the patience of somebody or just some health event or something opened your eyes and you began to sort of figure out this local supply chain food economy issue and understand some of the ethical dilemmas and issues involved in it. But a reformational spirit will take the long view with that couple. And maybe it will think, man, how can I um, privately or even anonymously help them if they're if you know husband needs a better job he needs to be able to make more money you know maybe he needs to um, have a good book that you give him and not in like a passive aggressive way no no no. but if you have a great well, book and you're like hey I, yeah. I know that you guys are new at a uh, marriage here to the wife this yeah. cookbook is really great it, it will help you think through some of these food issues and i feel like more than anything at refuge that's the biggest thing we've seen is just all of the women well the men too the men in their own way mm-hmm. but the women just being joyful about being in their kitchens. Yeah. 
it hasn't been like, hey, you got to follow these 10 rules that I say. It's like, no, let's let's be Christians at the breakfast Mm -hmm. table, at snack time, at psalm sing potluck. That's how it's been. Yes. Joyful. So we want you to be joyful and reformational, not bitter and revolutionary. We want you to be kind and not break fellowship over food, even over some of the principles we're talking about in this episode. Uh, another another point I think is important to note is that not everybody is called to homesteading, but everybody should be thinking Christianly about food, meaning thinking Christianly about growing things and animals and stewarding God's good creation. So this is important, actually, because mm-hmm. what we're trying to do isn't to convince all of you to go get a minimum of five acres and live a rural life. Not necessarily. We believe in specialization. You know, I would, in our community, what we're pursuing is we've got a family that's getting into sheep and pigs. Mm-hmm. We've got some people doing chickens and eggs mm-hmm. on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. We've got some people doing beef. gardens and vegetables and beef. And we want to see specialization where not all of us are actually going to homestead. Not all of us are going to even grow a whole lot of food. Yeah. But all of us are going to be growingly interested in this massive part of the world that God's made, like food. So... Let's unpack that a little bit. Everybody should care about growing things and animals and God's good creation. Mm-hmm. What is that? You know, how do you think, Lexi, about caring about animals? And, and I'm specifically thinking about as that relates to the practices surrounding modern meat production, okay. modern animal husbandry and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, a really close to home example is why we got rid of our rabbits <laughs> oh yeah. Um we this was our first full summer where they were metering our water and we kind of knew it was a gamble as to whether or not our pasture would live through the summer. And I am of the persuasion that animals should be in their habitat that God created them to be even as you're raising them. So for the rabbits that means on pasture. Um and because it dawned on me towards, you know, like 2 weeks ago that we had maybe eight weeks out of the year where we will have green grass for our rabbits. I'm not willing to keep them in a cage the rest of the year just to get meat rabbits for those eight weeks. I would much more happily support local Christians in our church who are supplying far and above what we need already. Yep. So um, we got rid of our rabbits for that reason. And, And this is where, like, Nutrition is one question, but then again, like land ethics, stewardship is another question. So an example for me is beef. Say what you will about this. I'm pretty convinced there's virtually no nutritional difference between grass-fed beef and non-grass-fed beef. There is a world of difference, though, between conventional feedlots and grass-fed beef who are living to the glory of God, munching on grass all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do they call it Where the when the... When the poop gets in the water and it essentially like, it's just really unkind to your neighbors too, to have those big feedlots around because it can totally contaminate their water supply. Um, It's unkind to the cows. I mean, even some of the things they do to the pigs and the chickens, like cutting off the pig's tails. The Lord gave them cute curly tails. Mm -hmm. Leave them there. Making (laughs) them live their entire life on a concrete floor when their entire... Their entire body is designed by God to root. Yes. That nose. Or chickens pecking. Yeah. It's okay. Sold. So like cage free eggs. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're just in an open. They're like, on cement <laughs> in some sort of a giant tent thing. Don't yes. see the sunlight. Probably yeah. still have their beaks clipped. Yeah. 
they're ugh, just right. stupid. Anyway, so like as opposed <clears throat> to pastured, truly pastured yes, chicken, chickens that are living a chick in a chicken way because God yeah. made them. Like you, as a right. Christian, you want to be working with the nature that God put into the animals, yeah. not working against it. And the reason that this matters is because God says it's unrighteous to not regard the life of your beast. Yeah. Proverbs 12.10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. So even just, this is a small application of that, really in the scheme of things, but it, it the, you know, the mer- there's a cage-free chickens. Look, we've been merciful on these chickens. But then we clip their beaks, so we put them on a concrete floor and never let them see the sun. It's actually cruel. Like, you haven't... Well, you haven't really loved those those uh, that animal well. Yeah, and Salatin, I think it might be in Folks of Saint Normal. He he uh, shows that Old Testament verse where it says, "If you come upon like a nest that has fallen out of the tree, carefully put it back." And he was saying, mm-hmm. like, as a Christian, if you can't care for the least of these in a small humble yep. way, what makes you think you'll be able to care for people in big ways? Mm-hmm. And look at our nation. Like, we don't treat the animals well, and we don't treat the babies well. Often, what happens <laughs> is that so republicanism. Is generally better ethically than than liberalism than Democrats. The Republican Party, like it's less disposed to or de, uh, inclined to kill babies. But what can often happen is Christians can conflate like republicanism with ethical, you know, with being ethical. And on this issue, Republicans are often crassly capitalistic. Yeah, very. Where they're actually ju- they're just thinking about bottom line. They're just thinking about profit. And actually, I'm not saying that. Um, caring for your animal won't be profitable. And yeah. Profit motive is a good motive. Yes. I, let me be clear on that. It's good for a farmer to make money doing what he does. But often, Christians on the conservative side tend to treat environmentalism as if it's just a liberal issue, and and actually not realizing that in the truest sense of the word, conservatives should care yeah. about conserving the, and, and, and tending the earth that God gave us you know, you think about like the work of a of a forester in the you know t- take a traditional British estate where a king would manage a vast area of land, and he would have foresters who would go out and they would actually um, cut down junk trees, they would clear areas, they would tend, and they would actually shape the entire forest over generations even until they would have these glorious hardwood forests or forest with the most useful trees and and they would you know manage the population of things like deer they would make sure that they didn't get overhunted people were managing these things in a in a dominion taking way they were truly conserving the world around them and and actually beautifying it and and multiplying the goodness of it and what happens instead is that people go oh that's liberalism that's the democrats yeah thing. i think you find out just how big government conservatives are when they start to see the food prices and the medical prices of unsubsidized medical care and food. Mm. And then they're like, wait a second, too expensive. (laughs) And it's like, well, so now you want the government taking care of you? (laughs) Christian Republicans are often like, but, but what you're talking about local food chains and things is more expensive. And you're like, well, no, it's not really. It's It's not, it's, it's more expensive to your immediate like one dimensional analysis because you're not factoring in government subsidy of big agriculture and then the huge impact that our terrible food and eating habits have on our medical system yeah. and then the government subsidizes that too and guess who pays for yeah. all that we do either through taxation or through inflation yeah so if if the medi- if the government's paying for your medical 
you're less likely to watch your food in a way because somebody can pay for your medical. But if you're paying for your medical and your food, you're going to watch your food because you don't want to watch your medical. (laughs) It's like, why do you think GMO corn is so cheap? It's because the government's paying for it. Yeah. They're paying for it. And, and, and to be honest, they, oh man, a whole different topic. They're basically (laughs) enslaving these farmers. They're not paying them a truly living wage. It's horrible. Yeah. So here they are saving the day, providing a market for the farmers. Yeah, it's just they're driving everything to increasingly large monopolistic conglomerates where you have larger and larger swaths of land managed by fewer and fewer people. You have fewer and fewer productive households involved in this process because the government is making the world its plantation. Yeah, that's what's happening. And so Christians actually need to be wise. They need to understand the times like the men of Issachar and be able to look through these things and actually diagnose the root sins and idolatries that are yes. at play and, and not get played by uh, this veneer of republicanism that will be like, oh, you know, we're we're for capitalism, right? Well, of course, we're for godly biblical capitalism. We're not for not crony, crony capitalism. capitalism. Yeah. You know? So we could go on about this for... <laughs> I love quite, talking about crony capitalism. Crony, ca- crony crapitalism. Crony crapitalism. <laughs> it's it's really terrible. We need shirts people. down with crony capitalism. Down with capitalism. Yeah, exactly. So everybody sh- every Christian should be trying to think Christianly about food. Of course because Christians should be trying to think Christianly about everything. But think about how important food is to the world that you live in. And God made like we said earlier in the season when we talked about our need for daily bread, that preaches something about our dependence on God and the world that God created. So we need to make sure as Christians that when we when it comes to food, we don't all of a sudden check our brains at the government's, you know, coat check <laughs> and say, take care of me, daddy government. Govern me harder, daddy. <laughs> like, no, we need to be men and we need to be women. And men and women rule their own spirits, rule their own homes. I mean, under the rule of God, of course, but they rule their own homes they rule their own communities, and they, they don't want to be slaves. And, yeah. and the, gov- the food industry is in, in straightforwardly attempting to enslave you. I think I think this was either John's um, interview with Eric on the Hard Man podcast or with um, Michael Foster, but he said, I think he was talking about in the context of the Babylonian exile when God told them to go in and plant gardens and yeah. um, establish a city. Mm-hmm. He said, fertility is resistance. Like yeah. part of why God was telling them to do that is because he knew he was going to care for them through that means yeah. so they weren't as easily manipulated by the outside world. And I was like, Amen. whoa. Yeah. So good. <laughs> no, think about, we said at the beginning that you're you're easy to manipulate and push around if you depend on completely things outside of yourself to eat it all. And the answer isn't that tomorrow all of us are going to become food independent within our own home. Like... Even within a homesteading community, you should have specialization where some people are doing certain things really well. We're not saying no specialization. Everybody has to do everything. Yeah. No, that's not the world God made. Some people have certain skills and talents and cultivate trades through generations even that are highly valuable that you couldn't replicate the work of a really good uh, miller in 10 minutes or a really good carpenter. It takes a lifetime to learn some of these things. Gardening, farming is no different. So so I hope that this has been a brief introduction basically to make you want 
to get your lo- think Christianly about your local food economy and your your food chain. What we want to do now at the end of this episode here is talk about some practical ways because this is bright hearth, meaning we don't just want to give you. <laughs> One of our, our values is we don't just want to give you big, good, shiny principles. We want to actually help you live these principles. So the principle is think Christianly about your food chain. And so you might say, all right, I've never thought about this before. How? What should I do next? What are some practical ways that Christians can shorten their supply chains? A lot of this, a lot of the secret sauce is actually in just shortening the supply chain. Mm-hmm. If you can shorten the supply chain, you've almost certainly made it more ethical, which yeah, is it's, this is a truism. True. It's not always true in every case, but it's nearly always true when it comes to food. Somewhere along the way, if you can shorten the supply chain, you're probably going to make it more ethical and support. So not only shorten your supply chain, but how can we support food culture that is truly ethical? What would mm-hmm. you say practically? Do you want like what step one should be or should we just... Yeah, just what do you think okay. practically? I, I think one of the of biggest the ones is not maybe not necessarily focusing on food first, but some skills first. That's good. Because say you get a whole pig, what what are you going to do? What with does it? it matter if you don't know how to make head cheese, or if you don't know how to freeze it properly, preserve or preserve it properly? Or, yeah. yeah. So maybe focus on some skills that you want to learn. I would say actually care about the world and find something you're interested in. Maybe you're not necessarily interested in building soil, but are you really interested in the variety of flowers that God created or, or are you really interested in trees and the way they communicate to one another because they totally communicate to one another? Oh yeah, they do. (laughs) I like trees. Something John recommended to us, I was starting a homestead lending library at your church. So maybe you're not like in leadership and you don't, you can't make that executive decision, but maybe you can just say, Hey friends, like if this is something you're interested in, come on over for uh, some uh, lard scones and Mm -hmm. some locally roasted coffee and I'll show you my homesteading library (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, you know, have that available for lending out. Uh, Be willing to find or host an Azure drop. Azure is a Christian company. Um, We've been very pleased with their customer Mm -hmm. service, their products, their variety. Um, We were able to get almost entirely... I think even, yeah, almost entirely out of, of like big chain grocery stores just because of Azure a couple years ago. So we we're really a drop. grateful for them. Yeah, we're a drop for our church. The way Azure works is that either a small business or a home even can host a drop where people order online and then to keep it efficient, it's not like you don't go to an Azure store, basically. They have a supply chain where the truckers will go and pack a truck or a refrigerated truck or whatever is necessary for that for those orders and they'll drive and they'll do large deliveries to one house. And then every we, we basically tell people, hey, the food's here or the whatever you bought. It's not just food. And people then come to our house or wherever the, the drop is and they pick up whatever they bought. And uh, it makes everything more affordable to do it that way. Yeah. And it also supports they buy directly from farmers, farmers, American and, farmers, yeah, American farmers. Yeah, find out who's doing something in your community and support them either by going to um, the farmer's market or you can go to eatwild.com. You can go to Weston A. Price and find a local chapter leader. Um, Ask the foodie in your church. Yeah, ask ask the the foodie. Yep. Um, I can't remember. I I think Real Milk is the raw milk website. I don't have my phone to look right now, but... Um, I think that's kind of it. And if you, if you find a farmer that you really trust, you like the way they're doing things. Oh, Joel Salatin always says, 
don't trust a farmer unless you can see their farm. So there have been farmers before where I've said, hey, can I come see your animals? And they say, no, it's too dirty. I'm like, oh, that's probably not somebody I want to be buying meat from then. Mm -hmm. But if like our produce farmer who took me to see his whole cool, you know, back to Eden setup, I love that weird farmer guy. (laughs) He's very strange. Some of them are strange people. (laughs) But I've been buying from him for years. He knows I like bulk produce. He's willing to like set things aside for me because we've developed a relationship. Mm -hmm. Ask those people who they would source other things from. Yeah, that's a good idea. So there have been times when my farmer, my produce farmer, he knows, I'm trying to think, a couple years ago, I think I was looking for potatoes, and he was like, well, I don't have them, but I can get them from a friend of mine up in the valley for you. So I trust him, you know? So um, grow something. Like, anybody could grow, could at least attempt to. I'm not saying you're going to be successful here. (laughs) You could try to grow some basil, Mm -hmm. though. Go to Trader Joe's and grab some, or... Uh, your local farmer's market and buy, you know, some uh, plants and keep them through the wintertime. Uh, this is so silly, but um, a couple years ago, I've said this in multiple places, I have not bought lettuce for I don't know how long. We don't buy spinach. I buy very little produce. But I did buy a big thing of um, broccoli seeds that I sprout in the wintertime when yeah. I want yeah. greens. I just soak them and I sprout them myself on our window windowsill, and that's how I have fresh produce for us. <laughs> I put them on top of hard boiled eggs. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about the buying club? Oh yeah, John Moody does host host. I think that's might be how you say it. Buying club. He actually just did an episode. It was like maybe five or six episodes ago on wise traditions about starting a buying club. You actually can do Azure wholesale. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you want to start a farm store for your local. Christian church or community. Yeah, you can sell it in the store. You can do Azure Wholesale, but you can also start a buying club, which is essentially instead of, it's really common for farms to have like drop locations once a week. So you kind of have to orient your entire week schedule around picking up milk or picking up meat, picking up produce. Um, What a buying club kind of does is kind of says, hey, farmer, we'll do the footwork for you we'll pick it all up for you so it can be at this one local central location for our buyers instead of our buyers all having to go drive in different places. They're all going to one local place. Does that make sense? Did I describe that? Oh, yeah, you know, that makes total sense. So, like, for example, right now I go on Tuesday mornings and there's at least four of my other friends at Milk Pickup, if not more. And I know there's more going to different locations and different times. It would be really cool if we could all just have one person go pick up that raw milk and we have it at a storefront that we come kind of at our own convenience to pick it up. Yeah. Which we are actually working on something like that. So that's kind of what the idea of a food, what'd you call it again? Food like drop? A, a buying, buying club. Buying club. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say homesteading, reading library? Yeah, I did. Type of thing. One, one thing as well, just you can start thinking practically. One, again, shortening your supply chain issues. Part of it, of course, like we said, is figuring out who's doing it and support them locally. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also, as a community, you can come together and actually, uh, real, maybe your church could realize the need. You're like, wow, we we all use a, a lot of um, meat, and so, and then maybe someone in your church starts doing it or getting mm-hmm. into it because they know that you guys are ready to support them. Yeah. So that's actually some of the ways that these things have happened Supply for us. Supply and demand, yeah. wasn't that the thing existed first and then we supported it. It was that people in our church got interested in something, like the shorts. They got interested in doing animals, and this is something they've, you know, they're passionate about. 
And because they had this backing of people to do it, I think it made it easier for yeah. them to well, get off the ground. I know it did because this time last year I was looking for local lamb and I had asked her because I trust her. I trust her farming practices. I knew she didn't have lamb, but I said, where can I find lamb that you trust? And she said, well, she sent me somewhere. And, and then we had a conversation a few weeks later and she was like, hey, are you interested? Because we'll raise lamb for you if you are. Like heck yes. Mm -hmm. So See? we're getting lamb this yep. year. So So now that's some new glory that's gonna exist in our community. Yeah. Cause it's a glory to know how to raise lamb. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. So a lot of these things are like don't get revolutionary, try to do it all tomorrow and then give up. Yeah. Because that's often what will happen. Yes. You'll get overwhelmed when you start reading every label and you'd realize how ubiquitous Things like high fructose corn syrup, soy, soybean oil, seed oils, colorings, all of these things that are making us sick and killing us. Mm -hmm. You you just go, how do I escape this? Well, it is a process. It really is. But once you, when you start with some of the big central things and work your way out, again, fighting food fussing the whole time, not thinking that the Lord can't save you through some red lake 40 or whatever it is, I don't know, <laughs> blue lake 40, you know, that your Christian friend serves you at dinner. But if you just start making the effort, push a little bit further, push a little bit further, it's pretty amazing what you can see in a year. It's like farming. Yeah, it what really is. you can is. see over a season or two yeah. seasons or three seasons. The Think of the process of building soil in an area with poor soil. It takes seasons yeah. and work. And you've got to, like, study and do hard things. And, well, this is going to be a hard thing, too. And the last thing, one, one, well, maybe not, the, I don't know if this is the last thing, but I would also encourage husbands, let me see, I have a quote here from John Moody that I found on his Facebook page. He said the other day, and I thought this was a good, his, it's said in a very John Moody way, which is like, it's funny, John is like the kindest person at Counting for Country, and then he gets up and he gives this just like <laughs> Chad King speech, and it's uh, very strong. So he's very direct. He's a he's direct, a yeah, that's very a direct speaker. But he said, "Men stop sabotaging. Sorry, men stop sabotaging your wife's efforts to feed your family well and wisely by your infantile infatuation with junk and <laughs> processed foods, or unwillingness to allocate sufficient money mm. to properly provision your home. Many of you care more about the fuel and oil you put in your car, or the ammo you put it through your firearms, than the food you put on your table and into your kids." But not, but only one of these things is eternal and tasked with producing additional eternal souls. Nourish them well. Ooh, that's really good. So I, I did want to make a practical point here for husbands and a practical point for wives. For wives, don't lead by nagging. Yeah. Don't make your home inhospitable to your husband. Work with him. Remember, he's the head of your home. So if he is highly resistant to some of these things, yeah. it's actually more important that you honor your husband than that you don't eat yeah. GMOs. Like, I'm yeah. just going to put it that bluntly. Mm -hmm. And I know that is really tough pill to swallow for some ladies. So my exhortation is to, again, keep your priorities first and second and third mm -hmm. and fourth, meaning do the biggest thing, pray, and try to win your husband. If if if, if he's opposed to this, try to win, say like, hey, can I make you this? Yeah, Show that's you what I was how, say. you know, really, this can be really tasty. Really grow in your excellence of skill. Because it can be. It's totally, yeah. it can be delicious and done well. Husbands, you shouldn't be that guy. <laughs> like, so you really shouldn't. You should uh, appreciate that your wife actually is in charge of, she is charged with, by God, feeding and caring for the people. So 
she 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 doesn't get to be a little queen and like you know <laughs> lording it over everybody, but she does have a charge here, so you should be slow to reject her efforts in establishing a healthy food culture. You should go. You should ha- be willing to allocate funds to it because again, you're going to pay for it on one end or the other. You're either going to pay for it on the food end or the medical end on a long enough time horizon. So yeah, it genuinely does cost more money in the grocery bill often, especially at first when you're figuring stuff out and where to buy and all of that. Um, It does cost money to do this. It's not as easy as going to Walmart and getting subsidized food. It's genuinely hard. Um, So husbands, be willing to allocate the funds that it takes to feed your family well. And I think John had a good, a good direct um, challenge there with the, like, do you care more about, are you willing to put, you know, $2,500 into your AR-15 setup and then not care about what you feed your family? Because both of those things are related to the defense of your family. Yeah. Right? So um, I I think that's a good, good charge there. Anything else you want to add in this episode before we wrap it up, babe? I don't think so. Awesome. Well, we'll be doing a, another episode right after we hit stop on this for our patrons called In the Kitchen, which is a patron-exclusive podcast that we produce every week uh, with the main episode that either answers listener questions or goes into more practical detail on some of the topics that we're talking about here or even other things than that. We try to make it very practical and helpful. And that's a way that we say thank you to the uh, families that are supporting us in producing this show um, it takes a lot of time and it takes funds and resources for us to make this happen. And so we are thankful for you guys. There's a, a link in the description of the show where you can support us there at patreon.com slash bright hearth. I think it's slash bright hearth. And uh, we would appreciate that. Um, we do give out a free feed the patriarchy mug that's pretty cool with uh, certain tiers of support there, as well as access to that after our show. We also try to make a strong effort to answer listener questions there on patreon.com, produce resource lists with links, um, cultivating different um, bibliographies and book lists and things like that. So there's all sorts of resources. If you go and support the show and sign up to do that now, you'll gain access to all 23 episodes of In the Kitchen that are already there on Patreon, as well as the one that we're going to do today, which I think is number 24. Um, So huge wealth of resources. Uh, If you can't support us in that way now, no big deal, but we do appreciate it if you can. Uh, But as always, thanks for listening to this episode of Bright Hearth, and we will see you next time. In the meantime, may the Lord bless you and yours, make you to be fruitful in every way.